Welcome to Rocking Our Prayers. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about how place can shape and drive and reinforce social and political change. And to that end, I'm joined by Dr. Gabby Crooks-Wisner, Assistant Professor at the University of Virginia, who looks at how, who uses rural urban differences in claims making and brokerage to understand and to theorize what drives accountability. And then I'm going to draw in some of my own work on rural urban differences in the drivers of social change and gender equality to theorize the drivers of social change. So in both in both papers, what we're using is thinking about how local place is reinforcing social and political change, either trapping people in sort of negative feedback loops or enabling more positive ones. So Gabby, welcome. Thank you, Alice, and I'm so excited to talk about both of our papers together. So Wonderful. I will welcome you as well. Yeah. Oh, you thank, are you, thank as you. Much, uh, <laughs> and of course, we have, our, we have our third guest, our third silent guest, who is uh, Dr. Adam Oerbach at American University. So with him, you look at how differences and expectations and claims making between slum dwellers and similarly poor Indian citizens. And you find that slum dwellers are four times, and this really surprised me, this rocked my priors, that slum dwellers are four times less likely to believe that they will get a response when they directly approach an official compared to a poor rural villager. So controlling for income, the slum dwellers are much, much more despondent. And that finding blew my tiny little mind because the data I'd seen thus far had always suggested, oh, you know, villagers are much more despondent, more fatalistic, expect less from government. You know, I think of the Brinkerhoff paper, the Brinkerhoff et al. paper and their analysis of Afrobarometer data. But you do something different. So tell us about, tell, give me your top line finding. Yeah. So essentially what this is, is Adam and I each wrote a book and then the book had a baby. And yeah. The paper yeah, exactly, is the baby, right. right? Um, and, you know, so what we have are two separate surveys accompanied by extensive qualitative work in both settings mm. where we've asked some really similar questions. And the top line finding from those is that there's enormous despondency in urban slums where the question essentially was if you yourself go to a government official and ask for assistance will you get a response or will you be ignored and relatively higher expectations of response in rural settings so we're not talking peachy keen rosy everybody thinks yeah, government sure, will yeah. just like lay down and give them whatever <laughs> they want in the rural setting but this you know orders of magnitude difference where you've got a four you're four times less likely to expect a response from government officials if you personally directly contact them in an urban setting. The key importance, and you stress this, is we're, we're comparing similarly poor communities. We're comparing slum communities in an urban setting, specifically in the cities of, uh, of Bhopal and Jaipur, mm. um, in Madhya Pradesh and Rajasthan, to similarly poor, across a number of different dimensions, similarly poor rural villages in Rajasthan. Um, so what puzzled us, what got us excited was, that, again, this idea that you know poverty itself is not uniformly constraining. Mm. Here are similarly poor people with vastly different expectations of the state. And and those expectations are important. What are the what's the effect of those expectations? Yes. So, you know, one of the observable implications, yeah. a behavioral implication of of these different expectations is that people then do different things, right? right? So the story is not that the more despondent 
uh, urban slum dwellers who have lower expectations of state responsiveness simply stop doing anything and just kind of lie down and take it. Mm. In fact, they're very active claim makers, but what are they doing? They're going through political brokers, right? So they have this very low expectation that if they themselves directly, face-to-face, try to contact and interface with a public official to, to make a claim to demand service provision, that they'll get a response. Instead, what they have figured out is here is this rich, like, sea of political brokers tied to political parties and what I've got to do is I've got to navigate that ocean and find the right political broker and find that linkage to the party. So it's partisan brokered networks in this urban setting, in the urban slums. And what we see in the rural setting is a, is a, is a striking relative absence of those brokers mm-hmm. and much more direct personal face-to-face contact with local officials. And is that problematic? I mean, some of the literature I've read before is raises concerns that if people are going through these vertical patron-client ties, then that's not mobilizing horizontally or making claims upon the state, but just seeking individual favors, sort of, uh, you know, trading, material security, jobs, access services in exchange for political support. So is it a, is the brokerage a problem? You know, not necessarily. I don't necessarily think so, right? I think this is all problem-solving. Right. I think it's poor and marginalized people in communities saying, I need to get something done, how do I get it done, right? And it's all an array of problem-solving strategies What where what people are doing is they're looking at their opportunity structure, they're looking at the world around them, they're revising their expectations, they're seeing their channels, and they're seizing different kinds of opportunities. But it does matter, I think, sort of normatively and substantively, that there's more of a direct interface with officials. Some are appointed, some are elected, mm-hmm. right? Um, but this direct interface with officials in a rural setting and a brokered interface in, in, a, in an urban setting, you know, I think what, what that means is you become more beholden on partisan networks and more beholden to parties and more beholden to those linkages, right? And so if you think about kind of a crisis of representation, mm. depends how you interpret it, right? Maybe those brokers are a key cog in the representational link, yes. in which case this is representation, it's just brokered representation, yes, yes. right? Or if you think about the local village council member who is elected um, and you're going directly to that person, you, you they're easily identifiable, you know who they are, you know where to find them, and that's a more direct representational link, right? But I think they're both representation, and I think they both matter, and I think people use them both to great effect to solve problems. Uh, well, well, there's a difference. So an individual might use them to solve problems, but do they trap people in sort of... I guess my concern is that... Is it the case that if you're trading your material security for votes, then you're getting individual advantage, but you're not organizing horizontally as a group of people, Mm. and that might stop you from making sort of class-based advantage? No, it's actually interesting because in both the rural and urban settings, we see lots of claim making that's both kind of narrow particularistic yes, individual yes, claim making yes. and we see group claim making around right. collective goods right we see that's that's health constant the sort right. of the nature of what people are claiming right whether it's an individual widow's pension or an individual uh, ration card mm. right versus something collective like collective drinking water or drainage mm. or or street lighting right we see that that's common across right. both of these okay. settings right okay. so it, there really isn't a difference in sort of this is more collective and this is more individualistic we see that both of those kinds of things are happening across both settings okay and but, but, but one clarification are we comparing apples and oranges is it like we're comparing unelected unelected officials in slums and elected officials in villages yeah no so this this is an important point and you know what we've done in the paper is we 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 asked this sort of this survey question that we have in common that says you know if you contacted an official would mm. you expect a response or would you expect to be mm. ignored and um 
I think it's not apples and oranges because the same cast of characters exist in both places, right? So you have the elected panchayat, which is the village council officials in the rural area. It's a product of decentralization. And then you have the same thing. You have elected ward councillors in cities, right? So the the corollary exists, right? There are the same same kinds of people, um, the same kinds of channels to the state are present in both environments. Um, But what we see is this quite dramatic difference in the types of channels that are actually employed. So one of the... Okay. One of the arguments for your paper is that people's expectations are influenced by the place that they observe. So if they observe a responsive state, then they come to expect more of the state. So you're saying that place matters and what you see of the state in that place matters. But my question, is it possible that actually citizens are different in these two places. So migration is selective and the canniest, most risk-taking migrate and perhaps they prefer uh, brokers. Perhaps, you know, migrants have lower expectations of the state because they're migrants. You know, it's not their place to ask the state. Maybe they feel like they don't really deserve to be there so much. They don't deserve, they, they deserve less in that space. You know, could it be that it's not about spatial variation but about individual level variation yeah, the migrants about, have different demands mm-hmm. about the, pe- the people yeah. who yeah. go and yeah. what and what. Exactly, exactly yeah yeah so we actually do look at this and we look at it in a couple of ways that you know the first is is across the urban data we can look at people with different longevity in the mm. slums right so recent arrivals and then people who've been there much longer who um, and we we actually find no difference, right? right so it's okay. not it's not something about the newcomer, right? right okay. Coming in with the new ideas mm-hmm. or like coming in with being let you know more disembedded, right? So people with different longevity in the same places, and we can and we can look at variation across that, and we see that re- that's really not explaining much of the variation that that we see. And you also don't find it's not that rural people have different needs, like they require more of government the people in urban areas still have needs of government like they still have you know various services yeah yeah yeah, absolutely right so you know and and i think i think we would be hard put to say there are no differences in need across rural Mm. and urban settings but you know drought point drought point environment or you need more agricultural extension Mm. or etc but they all have needs of government they all have needs of government and many of those needs are common right drinking water Mm. sanitation education uh paved roads right if you're thinking about sort of um, you, we're not talking about kind of big city infrastructure outside of the slums, right? So, like, you know, transportation networks and, you know, big highways. We're talking mm. about, you know, access roads within a slum, mm. just like you would talk about access roads within a village, right? Mm. Um, so those are really things that, that, are, that, that are very common across both environments. Okay. So let me summarize the empirical finding. I think the number one important point is that poverty itself as a material deprivation does not constrain claims-making. It's not that the urban poor have lower aspirations or they think that they're worthy and demand less. That's not it at all. It's about people's subjective expectations of the state as influenced by the specific place that they're in. And I think that's such an important point for us to take seriously as political scientists, that we're observing the place, the town, the city and the village. And that shapes what we think we can get, and then that will shape our kind of claims making. Is that is that right? That's yeah. No, that's ab- that's absolutely right. Um. Okay, but here's a question. So I am persuaded that these differences in expectations and claims are a response to state behavior. So there's a feedback loop. It's state beliefs and behavior. State behavior shapes beliefs. 
there's a question, why would state behavior be different in cities? Why would you get worse state behavior in an urban area? Why, why would that be? Yeah, no, and it's counterintuitive, right? We think yeah, about yeah, yeah. the urban core and the rural periphery, and you yeah. expect sort of a greater concentration of public personnel and resources in cities. And, and, and a, like the know, urban the, bias the remote in cities. Rural yeah, yeah, village, yeah. Right? Yeah. No, absolutely. So it's very counterintuitive. And so one, one clarifying point first, right, is we're talking urban slums. We're not talking cities writ large, right? This, mm. is, this is a poor, poor comparison. Um, so we're not talking cities writ large. We're talking urban slums within the cities. Um, and what we do in the paper is we try to puzzle this through. Why would you have these more despondent lower expectations of responsiveness in urban slums compared mm-hmm. to similarly poor rural villages. Um, and we, we hone in on a few things. So the first is um, w- what we talk about is sort of being the unevenness of the local presence of the state. So yes. this is a little counterintuitive because you think, you know, here I am in the city, it's the, it's the state capital, right? I'm, mm-hmm. right? I'm in close proximity to all these officials. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that they're very, very hard to find and locate, right? Because of sheer population size, right? And because of dense partisan networks that you have to navigate to mm-hmm. get to these power brokers, to get to the officials who hold the purse strings. Whereas in the rural setting, with lower population density, um, the state's right at your doorstep. You see it. It's a brightly painted yellow building called the Panchaya, the village council, and you know that person, and you know where they're easier to find and locate. Um, And so the state is more visible and accessible in a lower density rural area. The second thing that's feeding into this, mm. though, is what's the state doing? What's the local state doing? What does, mm. what's, the, what's the terrain of social service provision look like? And here we see this sort of history over the last couple of decades of this massive influx mm. of social spending in India, um, a lot of which is targeted to the rural areas. We have almost an inversion of a rural-urban bias mm. here, where, in fact, a lot of spending is being targeted to rural areas. And is that exogenous? Well, why, why is that happening? Yeah, I mean, it, you know... it. It's hard to say where the food feedback yeah, story, feedback loop story starts, yeah. and you know where where it's exogenous or, mm-hmm. or or endogenous. But but it's exogenous to the extent you know that there have been large court cases, for example, establishing you know the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. Right, mm. it's a constitutional act, a guarantee to 100 days of employment. Right, mm. targeted to rural areas. There is a similar kind of program in urban areas that's. Mm. Very, that's not well known, that people don't really participate in. Mm. A fraction of the sample participates in that urban program. Mm. Massive numbers participate in the rural one, mm. right? So mm. there's this injection of spending. Um, the spending hits the urban areas too, but it's, it's diluted by sheer population size. Um, and then there's this extra targeting of resources to the rural areas. So there's a lot of state presence in new programs and schemes. The second thing that's going on is decentralization, yes. right? So, you know, India famously is one of the sort of first and deepest movers in decentralization. These constitutional amendments in the mid-1990s that created both urban and rural local governance bodies. So on paper, they've all got it, right? You've got urban local governance and rural urban governance, um, but in practice, they look completely different. Um, there's been this institutionalization and deepening of rural decentralization, in part because of this influx of resources, mm-hmm. and so local elections have become mm-hmm. more competitive because there's there's more at stake, yes. um, and also because of constituency size, right? So the average constituency size in one of these village councils is about 5,000, and the average constituency size in one of these urban wards in the city studied is about 30,000. Right. Um, yeah, so in a con- right, so it makes right. it harder to be a yeah. responsive state. Right. So it's uh, and I guess another important issue is just rapid rural urban migration, which makes it very hard for the state to respond to this huge size of new new people coming in. There's just this, yeah. a question of state incapacity. Of state capacity, sure. And I think, you know, but one of the interesting things about the slums studied Mm -hmm. here in both Bhopal Mm -hmm. and in Jaipur Mm -hmm. are that they're very old slums, right, with Mm -hmm. long histories, Mm -hmm. right? So they're not new. 
Um, and it's not like city so governments so are surprised by them. We're so not talking not, so about... So it's not a function of being overwhelmed by rural-urban migrants? I'm sure there's a piece of that, right? I mm. mean, we do have massive rural-urban migration, mm. and it is putting stress on yeah, city yeah, capacity yeah. to provide basic services. But it's not a surprise. It's not something you can't plan for, right? right. People know what's happening. These yes. slums have been here for a long time. Yeah. And in fact, these are some of the oldest and most established slums, right? So right. people have been there for 15, 20, 30 years, right? These are established communities. Uh, so I guess what that also indicates to us is the longevity and the stickiness of the feedback loop. Mm-hmm. That, you know, these slums have been there for a long time. And, and people they've been under-provided and underserved for a long, long time. time. Yeah. And the only way that people are getting some advantages is through these brokers right so the brokers this is this is the, the third key piece of the argument mm-hmm. right um why is it that there are so many savvy equipped political brokers in an, in an yeah. urban setting yeah. um and our survey respondents in the rural setting report that not only that they don't turn to them as much but that mm-hmm. they're just less present there's just mm-hmm. fewer of mm-hmm. them right mm-hmm. and this we think is a, is a function of the unevenness of party organization right, right. so political parties in india are largely urban phenomena f- an urban phenomenon mm-hmm. right they have deep urban roots so if you think about kind of where your headquarters are and where your rank and file party members mm-hmm. are right so what adam documents which is amazing are you know that this proliferation of party position holders right yes. so you know they're ordinary people, but what they have is sort of the ability to penetrate parties and sort of work their way into party networks. Mm. And then what they provide for the party are these downward linkages to vote banks and to, and to potential mm. swing voters. Mm. And what they provide to people on the ground is a linkage to the party, right? Mm. And so there are, the, there are these political intermediaries in, in between. Um, now, they do, of course, exist in the rural setting. And in fact, um, older work by Anurad Krishna, you know, a couple a couple of decades ago documented a lot of this in rural areas. Mm. But what I find in more recent work asking actually exact, very, very similar mm. questions um, is that this is changing, mm. right? So there are fewer of these political brokers in rural. They're not disappearing, but there are mm. fewer of them. And people are turning to them in lesser numbers, in part because they're turning more directly to the elected village council mm. because of this deepening, this institutionalization, this deeper institutionalization of decentralization in the rural setting. In the cities, you've got these anemic urban local bodies. Yes. So the substitute for that is to turn to, to party brokers. Yes. And it just so happens that you have these dense, vibrant party networks in cities because they're an urban phenomenon mm. that are largely absent in the rural side. So you have push factors and pull factors, mm. right? Like, you know, you're being pulled into the party networks because of this dense presence of, of party brokers, and you're being pushed away from directly contacting your elected war counselor because you see that it's really not worthwhile is sort of low capacity, low resource, hard to find, huge constituencies. I guess one question is why not give up on the brokers as well? Because, you know, these slums have existed for a long time and these slums have existed with great urban poverty for a long time. So even if the brokers are slightly better, they're still not that great. I mean, we're still dealing with the context of urban, you know, these are still slum, very poor slum dwellers. Like, why even think that the why not become more despondent about the brokers? Well, the brokers are fantastic, amazing, savvy problem solvers some of the time, right? Mm. So what the story that Adam tells in his book, and mm. you should do a podcast with him so he can say it in his own words yes, and do it better, yes. better in his own words, right? But his book, Demanding Development, says, why do we see this variation, right? So he looks at, I think, about 80 different slum settlements, and he says, why is it in some places people really are effectively demanding development, Mm -hmm. effectively Mm -hmm. demanding these resources from the state. And it's through these brokers, right, who are able to make these linkages to partisan networks. So sometimes the brokers are effective. So sometimes the brokers are effective. A lot of the time the brokers Mm -hmm. are effective, Mm -hmm. right? So so to be clear, the story is not a lack of claim making and a Mm -hmm. lack of contacting, but it's It's a story of brokered claim making and brokered contacting, right? Yeah. 
I'm with you. Right, so now I'm grabbing, I have a, a, a building on from this, building on from this. So the, the general idea is the kind of what we observe in a specific place influences our expectations and how we then strategize to get our voices heard and our needs met. Suppose I'm a new PhD student and I'm fascinated by the idea of using subnational quantum qual comparisons to explore claims making or the drivers of positive feedback loops. What methodologies or issues do you think I consider? What, what areas do you think are ripe for new research? Yeah, um, I mean, I think one area that I think is very ripe for, for research it yes. really is this notion of a feedback loop, so sort of paying attention to this iterative interplay. Um, the difficulty here, particularly for PhD students mm. on kind of tight timelines, right, is this is often kind of longitudinal work. Yes. Um, but one way to grapple with that is to seek out histories, right? So whether that's archival history. So one thing that Adam did, which is amazing, is he has these huge Oh, my goodness, archives, it's phenomenal, right? These, but they're informal archives. Yeah, they're archives of, yeah. from slum brokers, right? Yes. So their own documentation and their own paperwork, right? So it's not sitting there in a dusty old National Archive. It's sitting in people's homes, but it's this amazing, rich history of organizing and demand making in the slums. So, yes. so you know, looking for sources like that, historical yeah. sources that, right, so whether it's going out, and you did this in your own work, uh, uh, you know, in Zambia, learning the local language and going and talking to old people, talking yeah, to elders, yeah. right, getting those histories. Um, and so I think if we want to tell these stories of feedback loops, we need the historical component. And we yeah. either need to do longitudinal research or we need to find a way of capturing that Yeah, history. I think that's key because social and political changes not happen overnight. It all takes... I, personally, for me, I think you can't really understand something unless you're looking at a 20-year period at least. You really need to... That, a 20-year period at least, to, to understand the drivers of change and continuity because... Ugh. Yeah, I'm, I think you need that longitudinal lens. And so whether it's by doing archival research or gathering, as Adam did, this fantastic data stored by slum brokers themselves, right. every transaction, um, or whether it's looking at older ethnographic work to try to get a picture of how things are changing over time. Because any, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Right, what else, what, what other issues do you think I should consider? Well, I think sort of from a methodological standpoint, mm. one thing... Um, you know, in, in both of our book projects, Adams and Mine, that, that I think was important and successful was the sort of iterative layering of qualitative and quantitative work, yes. right? So, you know, initial qualitative work to even cast up the puzzles in the first place. Yes. Right? We can't go from classrooms and books into the field and just ask ready-made questions. We need to let those questions I 100% agree with you. So just to recap um, for listeners that the question that, that motivated your book was you were bumbling around Bumbling, yes. Bumbling around, big rural, bumbler. bumbling around rural <laughs> Rajasthan, and then you observe this subnational variation in claims making and of expectations and observations and people referring to what other villages have, and that gave you the hypothesis. So I think it's the question of not just plucking the independent variable and the dependent variable out of thin air and thinking, mm -hmm. hey, let's explore the association right. there, but rather seeing what's going on on the ground. Or like, for example, with my work on gender equality, that I heard this discourse, which means women can do what men can do. And then I wanted to understand how that discourse had emerged. Yeah. And so that was that yeah. was my central question. Why why do we see support for that idea of gender equality? Yeah. It wasn't Where did me, that come from? It wasn't me coming in with my own idea of gender equality or my own project and exploring the effects. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So go in and work out right. what matters to people on the ground yeah. and then understand the 
the causes of those effects. Right. You know, and I also think for PhD students, right, and this I think particular to political science, but probably other disciplines as well, right, there's a lot of lip service to mixed methods, mm. um, but to take that seriously, to do that deeply, mm. right? And so, I mean, there's a beautiful piece by Tarek Thatchel that, um, that, that talks about the importance of coupling ethnography with survey design, mm. right, so that, that surveys have to be contextualized, um, and you can only do that through this deep, sustained, qualitative work first yeah. that lets you really understand that local context. Otherwise, you're deriving these instruments that are capturing like really yeah, thin, sure, disassociated yeah, knowledge, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, that's wonderful. Right. We're going to pause that there. And continuing this, so the argument of your paper is that what we observe in a specific place will shape our expectations. And the one and one reason why I like that in particular is that's exactly what I observe with gender. So, for example, when I've done this research in Cambodia and in Zambia, I found that in cities, in urban areas, then the density, the diversity, the heterogeneity, the intersecting migration channels really increase our exposure to a whole raft of things going on. And by seeing women pushing back you know, these incremental experiments, these encroachments, this can inspire and embolden others to also test the water in new ways. And we become inspired and emboldened. And so, so for example, even Cambodian schoolgirls hear about their friends getting homework. And so they become... They pester their parents. I want to go to school too. Or uh, a woman. (laughs) Yeah. Or a garment worker sees a neighbor in her dormitory. Uh, The man is doing the domestic, the care work, the washing up and the cooking, and she thinks, "Well, I want that too." And she and she wants to push for that too. And so I see that in cities, because that density and diversity that can encourage and enable these positive feedback loops. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a rural area, they might, you know. In a rural, more isolated, more homogeneous area, you might see one person who's a breadwinner, but you kind of dismiss them as an outlier. And so you don't get that positive feedback loop because you don't have the critical mass. They're just dismissed as an exception. Mm -hmm. So whereas you have stasis in the rural area, you have this positive feedback loop emerging in cities. You know what's so interesting, though, Alice, mm. is a lot of what you're saying about exposure and mm. you know, exposure to these different practices mm. or different ways of seeing or different ways of being and that that can inspire change, social change, yes, right, yes. is so resonant with what I find in my broader book project on rural India, right? Yes. So, um, so I wonder if there's a bigger story here about exposure and about shifting norms through exposure that's not necessarily an urban versus rural story. Because it's absolutely resonant with what I find no, in a rural absolutely. setting. Absolutely. I don't think, I think that for me, the rural-urban comparison is was a, a mechanism for understanding the underlying yeah. principle. So can you, can you yes. tell us about that? So, yeah. you know, the, the, I think the underlying so interesting. Principle. And I think this is key to social norms. So, um, and I'd recommend for people, uh, Christina Bicchieri's book on social norms. So the point is that if we see, if we observe this widespread behavior, whether it's in terms of men as breadwinners or the government responding, uh, or the government not responding to people's concerns, and that's what we come to expect. So we may become despondent if we don't see anyone else pushing boundaries or making claims or successfully making claims, then we may not anticipate that others will support us. We do not think that we will be successful. And so even if we might privately want it, we don't anticipate support, so we keep our heads down. And so we don't test the waters. And as a result of that, we're not changing our behavior, so other people 
of course, are not observing that behavioural change. So we have this coordination problem, yeah, right? In, in other work, you've talked about it in terms of pluralistic ignorance. Oh, right, right. yes. Yeah. Can you say what you mean yeah, by that? Yeah, so it's the idea that you and I might privately want a, a more equal department. You and I privately might we want might, we might want uh, pay transparency in our department to know what people are earning because then we could bargain for higher wages. But we never hear of any successful cases of any university doing that. And so we just sigh, uh, you know, we bitch about it on Twitter. And, you know, we don't really push for change because we don't think that our department he- de- departmental heads will take us seriously. We don't think that other our colleagues will take us seriously. We don't think we don't anticipate support. So we just become resigned to it. And but if you and I are never speaking out in our departmental meetings for it, then I don't see any I don't see any allies. So one of the things mm. that you find in your study of urban Cambodia and yes. also in urban Zambia yes. is cities are full of weirdos. Yes. Right? You've got the oddballs who are yes. like the people who are sort of fringe and doing something differently. Mm. Right. And so it's those first movers, right? Yeah, the yeah. first one mm. the first ones to sort of challenge the norm. Um, and what's interesting to me is to think about what's that relationship between those first movers and that tipping point where something starts to change and become acceptable. Right, so let me rephrase that. I would say in any place, you'll always have, in any place, in any society, you'll always have a few people pushing the boundaries. I mean, it's the density of cities yes. that makes so you more likely place, to find the weirdos. Yes, exactly. So in any place, you'll always have a few people pushing the boundaries and experimenting, but a few things are changing it and, uh, changing and enabling the positive feedback loop in cities. One is that in cities you have got a more self-interested reason to support women pushing these boundaries. Because in cities, you've got higher urban living costs, so that increases the opportunity cost of women staying at home. So families have a higher self-interested reason to support female employment, usually. Especially if you've got higher urban living costs, especially if there's a growth in sectors seeking female labour, whether that's manufacturing in Southeast Asia, whether that's the growth of health service in the USA or the UK, for example, the growth of administrative work, or tourism, for example. So you might have a more self-interested reason to support female employment. So that's going to create a downhill slope upon which your snowball can accelerate more rapidly. And then the second function of cities is you've got this density, diversity, propinquity, which will... So, for example, if I'm boarding a bus in Zambia, I might get onto the bus and I'll sit next to a woman who is smartly dressed going for her office job and will pass by a female engineer or will pass by a woman driving to the mines in her big dump truck or will pass by another person who's on her way to the bank to get a mortgage for her property or another person who's hired a van and she's building her own plot. So we've got all these little bits of exposure and gender stereotypes, to challenge our gender stereotypes, we need multiple disconfirming evidence. You know, we cling to our priors. We only start rocking them through this this wealth of disconfirming evidence. Mm. And in city and cities, you get that through once the wealth of d- exposure, and also through the through the the interest. Um, but it, but it's also it also depends on a couple of other things. So it depends on macroeconomic context. So for example, this is not a universally true story. So for example, in the USA, where cities are increasingly unaffordable, incredibly costly to live in, and also seeking high-skilled, high-skilled workers. So it would be very expensive for a low-skilled, low-educated person to move to a city. So you might not, ex- you might not find in cities that you have this 
catalytic effect because it's the more educated, more progressive people who are moving to cities. So this is not a universally true story of cities. It matters mm-hmm. who goes mm-hmm. there and uh, what's possible to change. It also matters things like uh, your individual level of characteristics. So if you're a domestic worker, confined to the home, associating only with the madame, then you're not going to have these broad social spheres. What also matters is the kind of government service provision. So in the UK, the USA or Zambia, 50 years ago, you and I might need our husband's permission if we wanted contraception or if we reported gender-based violence to the police, they might not take us seriously. It's only in a context where the government is doing gender-sensitive police training or when the government is supporting greater female autonomy and reproductive health that you and I can then come and expect to get greater service delivery. So it's not the case that all cities are necessarily catalysts of gender equality. If you went to New York or London or Lusaka in the 1950s, these things would not happen. But it's mediated by the macroeconomic context, Mm -hmm. the sectoral growth composition and the individual level characteristics and the government supply of service provision. Yeah. So let me ask you, Alice, because one of the things that's so beautiful in your paper is that you find, you you rack your brain and you find the sort of historical case uh, that you can go and visit that's going to give you the exogenous shock. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you tell a little bit, I love the story, sort of you, you generated a hypothesis in fieldwork in Zambia and then you said, you know, what are the observable implications of this? Where, you know, if I really want to test this, what would I go out and look for? Yes. And you go out and find that place and you go there, right? Right, yes, okay. Which also, the PhD student question here, like what, you know, because this is a great example of letting the question guide you. It took you all over the world. Yes, it did, exactly. So I did this, did this research in Zambia and I observed this rural urban difference and I think, right, if only there were more jobs for And just wi- say quickly, yes, the rural please. urban difference, right? Yes. It's, you know, so it's, you, you gave this great example, right? You go you go to the city and you learn that it's a bad thing to beat your wife. Yeah, right? sure, yeah. I know I right? interviewed a man. I interviewed, for example, a rural urban migrant, a guy who uh, sells fish in the, in, the, in the city. And he comes to the city and through just talking to people in the market, he comes to think that beating your wife is wrong. And, that, and that's uh, reflected in quantitative people in the urban areas right across the world, really, are much more likely to condemn gender-based violence. But then he goes back home, he goes back home to his village, he hears a woman crying, being beaten, and he does nothing. Why not? Because even though he himself thinks that it's wrong, he anticipates social disapproval. So it's, so the question is, well, why, why are these villages trapped in that, in that sort of negative feedback loop? Anyway, so I had this idea that, you know, why, why, why are, you know, and, the, and this end, there's a whole host of quantitative data backing this up, that, People, even controlling for income, controlling for education, controlling for employment, people who live in cities are much more likely to support female labour force participation, more likely to appreciate it, to applaud it, to support women's political participation, and to condemn gender-based violence. So, but I had this idea, based on my research in rural um, and urban Zambia, I thought, right, if only there were more jobs for women in, in rural areas, that might kickstart support for gender equality because by seeing women demonstrate their equal competence in socially valued domains then people would come to support gender equality so i thought right but let me test this hypothesis because you know that zambia you know is it what's the external validity here so i think okay if i'm saying that employment is the key driver maybe i'm just looking maybe i'm just seeing the effect of employment is it something about cities as well what i need is a a labor demand shock that is an increase, an exogenous increase in demand for female labor in a rural area. And then I can see, is it, do we then see an increase in support for female employment? In which case, maybe it's just employment driving this change. 
or a rural area is still lagging behind, in which case maybe there's a further factor keeping rural areas behind. So I think cities. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So then I think to myself, right, where in the world can I find a female demand labour shortage? And that's pretty hard, right? Because in lots of rural areas, well, you don't see rapid change or women are doing work, but it's not recognised, it's not valued. You know, the farmer's wife, for example, is a well-known trope in the USA and the UK. And I think, I know, even though I'm an Africanist, even though I've been doing work in Zambia, I think Cambodia, the growth of rural garment factories. As land and labour prices have risen in China and in Cambodia, more and more garment factories have gone to rural Cambodia. So what I can do is a rural, another another qualitative comparative rural urban study interviewing rural urban, rural urban migrants and in particular garment workers to see if in the rural areas getting a job has increased support for gender equality. So off I trot to Cambodia. Amazing. So I would like to ask you mm. one question um, yes. and it's one that I that I that I heard you recently in a in a public talk pose mm. to your audience mm. which was if you had you know 500 million dollars mm. and you could do something mm. to try to shift gender norms mm. Mm. building on your research building yes. on these findings building yeah. on this idea that it's not just employment it's something about exposure it's something about density it's something about the tipping points that shift these norms can you think of something that you would propose or something that would maybe help you test the, test the theory further? Mm, okay, so I think one thing that I would do is quotas everywhere. And I think that goes right back to your research because I would try to increase exposure to women in socially valued domains. Mm-hmm. And that's very similar to your, your research in that you would improve what people observe. You improve state responsiveness. Mm-hmm. So my equivalent to that would be improving what people observe, right. seeing so women just, in socially not value. Not just politically, you know, I would say right across the board. I would say women right engineers. To, w- women professors. I would say women electricians. If you're doing an engineering project, mm-hmm. if you're doing an electrification project, get women in there. I would just ramp up, ramp up what people observe massively because that's, the, that's what shapes people's uh, expectations. And that they say, and there's so much research. There's loads of excellent research showing that after you see women in political office, then you see an increased um, support for women politicians because people see that women can do it. So that's been amply dam- amply demonstrated in the political sphere, but we're yet to see it um, in employment. And I would say ramp it up. And that's exactly what you say too in your own research. That's how you kickstart the positive feedback loops. Ramp up the quotas. Um, I mean, there are other things you can do, like increase transport to enable exposure. But importantly, not all kinds of, you know, that's only the public sphere. That's only employment, a persistent area of inequality is care work. Yeah. And their quotas aren't going, and there you could also have quotas, get more um, men doing care work. Mm-hmm. But I think there, because it's happening behind closed doors, it's less visible. So we don't get that positive feedback loop happening. Because even if a few men are sharing care work, like your wonderful husband, for example. Uh, even if a few men are sharing care work, p- other people might not know that, other people not, might not observe that, and so people might continue to expect that men do not do care work, right. that men do not cook and clean and look after babies, because it's all happening behind closed doors. So people might anticipate social disapproval. So how can we get around that problem? I think uh, soap operas, having characters where men are sharing the care and that's totally normal and that not to be remarked upon so not making a big deal about it 
but just making it normal for men to share care work. I mean, so one is by doing it with soap operas, also by doing it with government policies. So, uh, uh, Caitlin Collins has got a great book out on making motherhood work, and she finds that in countries where you have well-paid, uh, transferable care work, where men are seen doing care work, you know, taking time off to look after the kids, then that catalyzes a positive mm. feedback loop with higher mm. expectations. Whereas in the USA, where maternity leave is maternity, where paternity leave is so terrible, people have low expectations of government. They have lower expectations of government. And, and instead of campaigning for change, these women are just beating themselves up. They use these individualistic tr- strategies, trying to make all, burning the candle at both ends, trying to do everything. But instead of petitioning the state, they just try to do it all themselves, burning themselves out. Whereas in other countries where in Sweden, for example, they, the state is facilitating that positive feedback loop. Right, right. So I think um, so. How can we improve? How can we accelerate progress towards gender equality and raise people's expectations? One, it's about government policies, paternity leave, for example, um, quotas for women, but also uh, also soap operas. But then, then I would take a step back and say, okay, so those are the gender issues, and those, and, and what I hope you notice there is I've highlighted parallels across high and high and low income countries because I do not see a difference in the mechanisms. The quotas are important whether we're talking about the USA or Cambodia. Then I would also take a step back and say I would just want to caveat that with one thing I came to reflect uh about four years ago is that I didn't want when I was concerned about what would lead to improvements in women's lives that maybe I was over over emphasizing the importance of gender inequalities. And then what I came to realize through that work in Cambodia was actually, wait a minute, the biggest problem here is not gender inequalities. It's the drought destroying their farmland, you know, partly associated with climate breakdown. And it's the poverty wages in these garment factories, which is partly a function of corporate impunity in the in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that yes, there are some important things we need to do for gender equality, but I actually moved away from doing some of my research on gender when mm. I started to realise, actually, wait a minute, Alice, you're obsessed, you, if you're concerned about these women's lives, the real dr- drivers of deprivation in their lives is, is climate breakdown and, uh, and yeah, the, yeah. The, bu- the buyer's purchasing practices, which are creating poverty wages. Well, that's a, that's a great segue to a last question I'd like yes, to ask you, right, please. which is... The paper is how do, how cities erode gender inequality, right? Yes. But, the, but the but the theory is generalizable. You can think about this across yes. a number of different the sectors and norms, loop, yes. right? This idea of feedback loop and expectations and first movers and tipping points and demonstration effects, mm. right? All of all of this is generalizable. But I want to ask you, sort of, mm. where and how do you think it's generalizable? Um, and in part, this is to sort of link it back to the, our two papers side by side, yeah. where on the surface they seem to disagree, right? Because we find yeah. right in a in a in we find greater urban despondency, mm, mm, despondency mm, right? And, and despite the density and despite mm, the networks mm, mm, and despite the more ample resources, we find this greater um, despondency in poor urban slums compared to rural villages. On the surface, mm. they seem to be opposing findings. I actually think they're incredibly complementary. No, they, they, they say the exact same thing because right, they show the same mechanism. And the place matters. What you observe in that specific place shapes your expectations of what's possible Absolutely. with regard to that thing Absolutely. in and that specific place. And I think that's the place. generalizable yes. finding that's consistent the general... across them. I also wonder, though, if sort of the, the norms that you're describing related to gender are some of the stickiest and hardest Right, and so maybe you need that kind of the density of the urban environment to sort of be have that catalytic effect. Whereas norms about political participation or expectations of service provision, in a sense, are 
easier, relatively easier to adjust because you're constantly seeing the hand pump, the school teacher, the road, and you're adjusting your expectations mm. almost constantly as you see this lived environment around you. And we're ta- so we're talking about very different sets of norms and expectations, very yeah. different sets of behaviors. I mean, they're different. I don't know if we could necessarily quantify and say, oh, this is harder or, you know, as right. if on a scale. But I think there are reasons why we might expect uh, gender relations to be particularly sticky, as you say. One is that our identity and our self-esteem might be so rooted in a particular performance right whereas getting things from the state getting th- getting a well isn't like challenging identities or is let's yeah. so you know so there are some differences so there are some differences there but i don't think we need to worry too much about which is harder or weaker what i think i would love more social scientists to do is to take those feedback loops seriously and to use a range of methodologies to explore and I think the hardest question, the hardest question is how do we change them? Yeah. How do we push that snowball or how do we create a hill for that snowball to roll down? How do we create, how do we overcome that chicken and egg problem? Because I think you and I have both demonstrated that there are feedback loops. That I think we can say. But how do we shift from one equilibrium to the other? I think that's the biggest, most important question for social science to address in whatever we're looking at, whether we're looking at accountability or gender relations. How do, we, how do we overcome that chicken and egg problem? That's a big question. Yeah. And I think all we've shown is that it's influenced by place. But it's a huge terrain and I'd love other people to take it seriously. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Awesome. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Alice.